Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you today, Sean Hinton. He is working with this really cool new technology that's helping us reskill and prepare for the future of work. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Heidi. Pleasure to be here. Now, we met recently at a Singularity event, I believe, and I am just... I want to hear a little bit more about sort of what brought you there and what you guys are doing. Can you explain a little more about what this is, sort of reskilling, and how does that fit into the future? Sure, absolutely. So what brought us to the Singularity event was that Skyhive, my company, is a portfolio company of Singularity University Ventures. And so really, the it was Singularity helped us at the very beginning in terms of organically planting the seed for Skyhive and then growing it out as we've gone. And so we're a, a big fan of the, the Singularity community and exponential thinking. To answer your second question, Skyhive is a focused reskilling software. And what that means is the World Economic Forum estimates that 52% of the world's workforce today is going to have to have some form of reskilling between now and 2023. This is as a result of digital transformation, automation, globalization, but also the changing nature of the workforce, people preferring gig work, freelance work, and having remote work. So Skyhive helps companies and people, first of all, understand what their skills are are in terms of the life experiences they've had, the work experiences they've had, and the educational experiences. And on the company side, helps companies themselves understand the the skills that they have in their workforce. And then uses artificial intelligence to capture labor market information, the changes that are happening within the, the labor market and the workforce, and then finds ways to keep companies and people reskilled as those jobs are changing. I love that. And it's so important. It's a conversation we often have on this podcast, because I speak with people across different industries about how technology is changing the way they work and live. And one of the biggest problems is digital transformation, because no no matter what industry you're in, technology is becoming sort of a big impacting factor on how we change, how the whole workforce is changing and the requirements of what we do and how we do it. And it's not just about robots, but it's also just about understanding how we do our daily job. And sometimes some of those jobs are disappearing. Where do you see the biggest shifts happening? What kinds of organizations are, are you finding the biggest demand from? Well, it really depends on the context of the changes. So we talk about, for example, the baby boom and the aging workforce. And this is opening up industries that would be considered traditional. For example, personal home care workers that are helping with the elderly. This is the first and second most in-demand jobs in the United States right now. And so we tend to automatically go to robots and automation, but we're still looking at, at least in the Western world, we're still looking at very traditional skill shortages and labor shortages. However, we do see that transitioning over time. For example, the number one digital skill in demand right now, can you guess what that is, Heidi? The number one digital skill. The number one digital skill, uh, I don't know, phone, phone setup. <laughs> I mean, so 
I find everybody struggles with that one. Right. So the number one, so we read a lot in the media, right, about advanced technologies mm -hmm. and soft skills, and, and this is what's going on in the future. The number one skill in demand in terms of digital skills right now is Microsoft Office, mm. which if you went back to 1995, the number one digital skill would be Microsoft Office. And so this is really about empowering the world with this type of information and understanding that, yes, things are changing rapidly. However, not having so rapidly. a sense and... <laughs> And not so rapidly, exactly. So, and then of course you get into where things are rapidly changing. So if we take the automotive industry, for example, probably one of the largest examples, the most prominent examples of a rapidly changing workforce where th that industry is moving away from combustible engines into electric vehicles, moving away from human driven uh, uh, automobiles into autonomous driving. So this is going to require, you know, virtually, you know, when in the grand scheme of of things overnight, a substantial shift in the in the skills of the workforce. Absolutely. I mean, I think of my own vehicle. I like old cars. And I remember having a conversation with my mechanic because I used to drive a 2001 stick shift, loved it, loved it. And my mechanic said, don't get anything you know newer than 2006 or I won't be able to fix it because they've all gone completely computerized. <laughs> so I got yeah. a 2004. I upgraded my new car. <laughs> but I think Absolutely. I mean, that whole sector is completely changing. But Microsoft Office is definitely still very prevalent. But do you find that with that, even, you know, what that means to be able to do Office and how you use Office maybe is changing? Well, I, it, it, it's interesting because I think when we're on the bleeding edge of innovation, we're seeing, well, you know, let's get away from this whole notion of a keyboard and, and make it more efficient and, and get into a visual or voice type commands to computers. However, there, there's those of us that are in the world of innovation and exposed to it every day, but then there's the actual general public. And, and, and where the general public sits right now, at least with respect to labor market data, is yeah, things are changing, but but not in, in, in a lot of the doom and gloom way in which it's being represented necessarily. I think it's so, it, it's a very important point that you bring up of sort of those of us that work in this space, we're in this bubble where we see everything happening very rapidly, but that's not the way it works in the rest of the world. And so to get that balanced perspective is really great. Now, on your site and, and your community, you were saying that a lot of that is, you know, you're tracking that and able to sort of help understand the market data. Is that something that's accessible for your clients? Or is that something that you aggregate and you use just for designing what kinds of tools you're going to be teaching for reskilling in the future? So really the core of our technology is the world's first, what we call real-time skills ontology. And what that means is, uh, I'll put it into a very pragmatic example. You have a term, a job title like project manager. And project manager has been the exact same job title for decades. However, what happens within that job, the technical skills, the soft skills, the tools, the requirements, the methodologies and the technologies are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And if we actually look at the granularity of that, and this is what we call at SkyHive quantum labor analysis, if we look at the granularity of a job, we can see that that job is completely different than it was five years ago, 20 years ago, or in five years from now. 
And what we've built is a deep learning technology that's able to go out and do that across all jobs. And so we can see whether you're a customer service representative, whether you're an air cargo handler, how those jobs are changing. And because we have that visibility into the granularity through quantum labor analysis, we're able to see the exact minute that a new skill comes in demand and starts making its way up the demand curve, or it starts to lose demand and starts to fall off as a skill that's not going to be required much longer. And so you can think of this like a stock ticker almost Mm -hmm. for, for each skill where we're seeing, okay, this skill is popping up across multiple jobs as as something that's in demand. With respect to that data, that's obviously the core technology of what we do. And so somebody that is is just going on to figure out what their skills are and how those skills relate to jobs or training wouldn't see that level of granularity. But certainly when we're working with our large government clients or or, uh, Fortune 500 clients, we're seeing this at a very granular level within their own organizations. Very cool. But does that also mean that you can use it for proactively saying, you know, hey, there's this shift happening and, you know, and sort of pushing some of the new information or new ideas towards people that are in the system that are doing the reskilling? Or is that something that you wait for people to pull it? No, it's a great question. So our core technology rolls up into a set of applications that we actually provide a very simple user experience in an enterprise software. Mm -hmm. And so the companies that we work with are provided with an enterprise platform that's purely focused on reskilling, provides a very straightforward, modern user experience to allow both, you know, human resource professionals, learning and development professionals, but as well as employees have user flows that help them explore the world of how skills are changing and how they can continue on their career pathways with respect to upskilling. Very cool. Now, I'm curious, I mean, I've got kids that are sort of in the, you know, early adulting phase. So when we were in the green room area, we're talking a little bit about individual access to this system. Is this something that potentially people can come in that are just coming into the job market can say, hey, I want to know what skills are in demand? What can I, what can I do proactively to learn those skills and and how can I understand how the market is changing so that I make sure that I'm sort of graduating with the skills that I need in order to go to work rather than just a degree that's a nice piece of paper that says, you know, you've learned liberal arts and sciences. Is that something that you've looked at at all or is that something that there has been any demand for? Absolutely. So our, a little bit of detail on the structure of our company. So I had a a successful corporate career. I I ran a large manufacturing company before starting Skyhive. And the impetus for me to start Skyhive was actually to set the example that we can build very successful companies from a profitability perspective, but I, I structurally wanted to build a company that could drive social impact in tandem. And so how it relates to your question is part of our company, we're we're a B corporation, we're a living wage employer. And so we're very focused on our own internal community as well as a local geographic community. But we also serve, we we take on projects either pro bono or, or through projects with partners that serve what we call the six underrepresented groups of the labor market. And what underrepresented groups means is we're reading in the newspaper these days record low unemployment. And, and we're seeing this all over the, the media when the monthly unemployment results come out. 
But if you turn to page two, there are a set of groups within the labor market that have either double or sometimes triple or even beyond that disparity with the unemployment rates, meaning that the unemployment rates in these communities are far higher. And those communities, for the example of North America, would be women, youth. A a little known fact about youth is today in Western economies, 40% of youth that are in the labor market and youth in this case being under 25 years old, 40% of youth in the labor market are actually working under the poverty line. They're earning under the poverty line. And so they're employed, but they're not employed in a way that's that's actually uh, sustainable, right? So women, youth, newcomers, so people, immigrants and and people coming from other countries, veterans who are transitioning out of long-time military careers into civilian society, the physically disabled, and uh, also indigenous populations and Latino communities. And so all of these six underrepresented groups have drastic disparity to average unemployment. And so as it relates to youth, going back to your question, We take on work, for example, one of our partners in the U.S. is uh, uh, serving K-12 elementary and and Mm -hmm. secondary uh, education, helping connect K-12 students with virtual internships Mm. within local community employers. And we're helping facilitate that through the provision of a skills passport where people, you know, as they're coming into this virtual internship, they're able to have a skills passport and begin to have that career exploration. But as they're accumulating skills through the experiential learning that they're having, they're applying that to their skills passport, which then eventually transitions into, okay, what are my opportunities for employment? And so there are a plethora of applications that exist with our technology, whether it's working with online digital learning and aggregating that content into very targeted pathways for people who have their passports, and on and on and on. So yes, to answer your question, we are are deeply engaged in in helping youth understand what's coming in front of them in terms of career pathways and activities in the labor market. I love that. And I think it's so vital. It's a, it's a conversation both as a parent and as a person that, you know, came from working in education technology. It's very exciting for me to see that we're, we're evolving to that space because it is kind of scary to see that this high level of unemployment or underemployment. I'm not sure what the, the term is where they're employed, but they're just not making any money. They're not, they're not. You know, making enough money to launch fully, so to speak. And that is, that's kind of scary. So I want to circle back a little bit because you had talked about this growing population of the baby boomers and the, you know, needing to provide both service products and services for the baby boomers, but also to care for the elderly who, you know, the baby boomers are moving into that stage as well. Are you finding that people that are within that demographic are the ones that are serving that demographic? Is there enough interest or I, in some ways, I guess I wonder whether it's, is there enough funding going into it so that it inspires interest from younger people to get involved in serving that population? Yeah, it's a very, very uh, interesting question, and it, and it's a, a really, really great example of looking at quantum labor analysis through the lens of having an understanding of how it's moving. So this one's going to be really interesting. So the number one and number two sources of workers to help you know with personal home care aid come from retail and food and beverage. So let's play this out a little bit. 
retail is under, as we know, a complete assault from online, uh, you know, and e-commerce platforms. And so retail is drastically changing. If you actually segmented retail, you'd see that there's a a big gap there in terms of of unemployment. And food and beverage has been traditionally a, a low wage rate position. And, and is, is also changing in terms of the ability to have gig workers that are, are delivering food, automating a lot of food and beverage, at least in the fast food side. Mm-hmm. For those of us who have, have stopped for a coffee or something like that, and we're ordering from a kiosk now, right? Or from um, our and phones. So, what's that? Or from our phones. Then we just go pick it up. Or from our phones. Exactly. So as this transition is happening, there's a boom coming from personal home care aides, but the world, you know, the world outside of, of people like me and, and my colleagues at Skyhive who see this granularity, they don't realize the connection that's there, that there's, there's a ton, you know, that the sources of candidates for these new jobs are coming from industries that are actually under under a lot of pressure with respect to decline, right? And so where you really begin to raise the question is, hey, we see this correlation. Why aren't we promoting awareness that this correlation exists mm-hmm. and helping people understand that pathway that otherwise wasn't available because we didn't see it, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is really where it's a great example where you begin to see the power of quantum labor analysis, where you begin to see these correlations that weren't available to us before. Got to love big data, especially when it helps us really, you know, opens our eyes to that kind of thing. Are you familiar with retirement jobs? Or maybe not. Um, Anyway, retirement jobs are just thinking, you know, Chip Conley was also speaking at the Singularity event. And I mean, really, they're both from a very different perspective, Chip's really looking at sort of the, you know, the taking the the modern elders and and making sure that within the workplace you don't lose that wisdom and knowledge within the organization and sort of how things worked before. Like you were saying, Microsoft Office has not necessarily disappeared. It's just maybe evolved into a different way. So it's not a question of just replacing the old. It's about putting it into context. Whereas retirement jobs is, it's basically a job placement for people that are, I think it's 50 plus, which is, you know, can be completely the huge disparity in what 50 plus means in different markets. I mean, I'm 50 plus, but I'm nowhere near ready for retirement. But for some people, 50, they feel 50 a lot more, I guess is the easiest way to say that. But I wonder with your with your quantum learning platform, does it give you the opportunity to really you you mentioned before that it identifies skill sets and identifies the abilities to you know so that you can basically see what you're good at if I'm understanding it correctly, what you're good at and what you might potentially uh, be good at learning that you hadn't considered before. Does it give you that opportunity where you don't just come in and say, well, okay, what I'm doing is it's redundant now. How do I find something new and what would work for me? Is that something that that could pair well with that where it also helps you understand where you fit in the marketplace? Like, who am I now? Yeah. So at, at a company level, what we see is that there's a big bubble around what you're calling retirement job, retirement age in terms of a workforce that is, is a bubble. So they're still actively engaged in the workforce. Then there's a narrow funnel where you're looking at sort of, you know, mid-career individuals. And then there's actually a big bubble on the youth side, on the, on the sort of emerging middle-age uh, sort of careers. 
And so we implemented a what we call a, a mentorship module where we're capturing the skills of the aging workforce. And then we've got an application that helps those who are looking to be mentored transition those skills to the younger to the younger workforce. And the reason for that is that it's helping the company fill that middle pipe faster. And so it's helping those individuals that want to succeed in the company in, in terms of succession planning, move faster and more accelerated along that path. So absolutely, there's, I believe, a massive role to play there for the retirement jobs, as, as you're calling them, and, and how they can impact not necessarily just the application of output of mm-hmm. skills, but how they can actually transmit that knowledge and experience to the new generation. Well, absolutely. But the one piece I wonder, though, I mean, is there reciprocity in that? I mean, the times that I have mentored, I've I've learned as much from my mentees as I have provided, I think. I mean, it's really, you learn so much mutually because they come with a completely different perspective. And so it's about sharing those perspectives so that you can move forward together rather than just one pulling the other ahead. Someone gave me a great analogy once that I loved about a mentor was, you know, when you're riding a a double bicycle, a tandem bicycle, it's not the person in the front, it's the person in the back. That So the person in the front, the mentee is in the front steering, and the one in the back is sort of gives them a little extra push when they need it to go uphill. But otherwise, they're just going along for the ride. And I think that's a beautiful analogy that really helps us understand the, the need for both but that they're mutually dependent. I remember a movie from a number of years ago. It was Anne Hathaway and Robert De Niro, The Intern. Did you ever see this movie? I saw it years ago. I can't, I, I can't remember it specifically. But so, And this is a great example of it where Anne Hathaway is this executive and, and Robert De Niro has, has retired and he comes back as a retired intern. And of course, she learns a ton from him. He learns a ton from her and it's a Hollywood story. But uh, yeah, no, and it's absolutely... You think about retention and engagement of employees, Mm -hmm. right? And when people have the opportunity, not necessarily in an explicit mentor-mentee relationship, but really just to come together and what I call in what we call in Skyhive supermind, where we're looking at concepts and ideas, not necessarily in 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 a positional context but coming together to make that super mind even stronger, you know, and, and uh, what's amazing is with advanced technologies, we're able to support that. Right. And so it's more of an abundance perspective as opposed to a fear perspective or a, a positional perspective. I love that. And the abundance mindset is really great. I'm going to take a really quick break here so we don't forget to uh, give a little thanks to our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Rocketbook Pro and they do, I was thinking about as you were talking about it, it reminded me of Rocketbook Pro because it's sort of like my extra brain. You know, it's that note taking thing where you can, you can actually, when you jot things down, you can always find it later. But one of the things that I love about new technologies is that it doesn't necessarily get stuck in a piece of paper that, you know, gets folded away and stashed in your cupboard. And then you're like, where did I leave that? Where did I write that note? But Rocketbook Pro is this really cool technology where you actually can write hand on paper. You scan it and it goes into uh, whatever application you're using for keeping track of your notes. So it's 
searchable and there's a taxonomy later. So anyway, I really appreciate their support of the show and they've been nice enough to offer a discount for our listeners. So if you go to the show notes, you'll be able to see the link there. And, um, and by purchasing your Rocketbook Pro from that link, you'll actually be supporting the show. So just want to say thank you to Rocketbook Pro and to our listeners who have taken advantage of the offer in the past because it's a great technology. It's one of my favorites. It got me through my PhD, gotta say. I couldn't have done it without that. It was a, it was a brilliant tool. Anyway, back to the show. And Sean, I wanted to go a little bit into your story and what brought you to working with Skyheim in the first place and sort of how did you end up there and, and what's your story? Sure. So prior to launching Skyhive, as I mentioned earlier, I was uh, president of a, a large manufacturing company. So it was actually the world's largest water park company. And so we did all the architectural design, the engineering, the manufacturing of attractions and construction project management on all of the uh, parks that families of your listeners would enjoy all across the world. Clients like Disney and Six Flags and Carnival Cruise Lines, etc. And so I had started in that company as a, as a mid-level manager and uh, went and expanded the international markets. So spent a, a lot, uh, three years in, in Europe building out what we call EMEA and then uh, a, a couple of years in Shanghai building out uh, Asia Pacific and then came back to run the company for a few years. So prior to that, I was a private consultant to the government of Canada. I had several remits, but the majority of my work was focused on supporting private sector, government, and training and vocational institutions with labor mobility and labor economics. And so now you can begin to see the connection to uh, SkyHive. So spent uh, uh, thousands of hours doing competency profiling, competency mapping, understanding credentials and credential recognition, understanding the dynamics of of labor supply and demand factors in in the labor market. So fast forward to 2016, I was attending a conference in Dubai of the Young Presidents Organization. Mm -hmm. I'm a member of of YPO. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, a, a group of Syrian women got on stage. They had escaped Syria during the Syrian civil war and were living on the UN refugee camp in Lebanon. They spoke to us, us being 2,500 CEOs from across the world. They spoke to us about the atrocities of the treatment of women during the Syrian civil war. And literally within that hour, I had a, a new purpose. And mm-hmm. I came out of that session, I felt that I needed to do something and contribute my energy and, and expertise and knowledge to helping the world, even if in the smallest way possible, solve a problem. And obviously, with my background as a, as a leader and as someone who was focused on labor economics and, and real passion for economics, I really wanted to help people with having a better access to livelihood and economic empowerment. And so then the next step was to say, well, how can I help people better understand what they're capable of and how to apply that to the context of a labor market? So at that time, I had no future of work aspirations or artificial intelligence aspirations. It was really just wanting to help people better understand what they're what they can do. And uh, and so that leads us to today. What a beautiful pivot. And I mean, it it, it just shows how poignant a story can be in terms of helping us find our purpose. When we moved here from Sweden, 
here being, I live in California now, but when we moved, it was right around that period of time. And there was just this huge influx of refugees. And it was really hard. We didn't move because of that. We moved because of something completely different. But what was interesting is whenever I went back, I was always amazed by how the gig economy was one of the few things that was actually able to support the employment of a lot of this influx of people because they really, as long as they had a laptop, they could keep working, but otherwise they were sort of forced into, you know, these menial jobs that nobody else wanted to do, cleaning houses and and things like that. So I I think what you're doing is uh, is incredibly important and uh, really appreciate it. Uh, One thing, you know, because this podcast also has a little bit of a twist around digital well-being and sort of the ethics, but we won't go into the ethics so much because I think you've covered a lot of that and what you're doing, but you're, you're really looking at sort of that purpose and, and ethics of making sure that people are prepared for the future of work. But in terms of digital well-being as a leader in your organization, what do you do to be mindful of your relationship with technology and the way that you adopt to new technologies, both personally for taking care of your own physical and mental well-being, but also within your organization? Yeah, I mean, one example that I would have that really resonates with me is I was one of the early adopters of Muse technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was, uh, for those of, of, of your listeners who are not familiar with Muse, it's a, a headset that you wear and it's a meditation uh, application that, that's on your phone. And that actually led me to uh, a great love and passion for meditation outside of, of technology. And so I will spend the odd Saturday morning at a Buddhist temple doing various sorts of meditation. But all of that was, was triggered by, you know, a, a hardware and software with Muse. And so I think that's a great example of the power that technology can have uh, with respect to not only digital well-being, but well-being in general. I love that. Actually, I used uh, Muse. Uh, my listeners are probably very familiar with Muse because I used it in my dissertation study on wearable technologies and presence of mind in the workplace. And it sounds like you're, you know, the way that you used it was very similar to a lot of the people that participated in the study that used the Muse, where it made them more mindful of their own practice but they didn't necessarily continue using the device later. It was more, it helped them build an awareness and an appreciation for the way that made them feel and that they wanted more of that. And I think that that's something that a lot of particularly wellness wearables can do. It's not necessarily that you're going to wear a fitness wearable for the rest of your life. You get a Fitbit and you wear it for three months or six months to get you started into a better routine. And then once you've got the routine, you're not necessarily going to continue wearing it. So it's it's kind of interesting to see how people adopt and and sort of evolve with the technologies. Do you find that for you, you have a good good boundaries around technology and how you use them? A lot of people have different sort of rules in their household, for example, around smartphone behavior. It's not allowed at the dinner table or, or it is around the dinner table or do you keep one in your bedroom at night? Do you find that you need to create boundaries for that as a, as a leader feeling that you need to be on all the time and available for people in your organization? I practice a number of things. So first of all, I do not keep my phone anywhere near my bedroom. Um, I have Sundays that are are basically technology free. 
I know there's a name for that, but I, I, I don't know the actual, there's a, a trend that's going on. I think maybe Arianna Huffington uh, had established that or something like that. Fasting, digital fasting or something like that. And, and so Sundays are, are, are purely focused on uh, actually, you know, smelling the roses and, and, and taking in uh, the world around me. And I, we have uh, functions on our, on our own sort of messaging technology internally. So when, you know, the team is quite active on various types of messaging technology, but we actually have snooze functions. It's like, okay, that's enough. Go and go and watch, you know, Stephen Colbert or something. Don't, don't be worried about what's going on right now on, on the chat function. So. I love that. And kudos to you for doing that, because that is something that I often advise my clients on is that, you know, you have to set up a culture that encourages people to be conscious of their relationship with technology and the way their behaviors around technology. So it seems like you're doing brilliant job with that. So kudos to you. Not everybody's been able to accomplish that in their, their company environment. And even if it's just to give people the hints, it's just building an awareness and, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do, but at least you can help them by saying, you know, Hey, take a moment to just breathe and take a pause. So awesome. Well, you know what? I'm just so delighted to have you here and so delighted to hear more about your work. I want to make sure that our listeners can find Skyhive and participate in whatever way. Can you tell them a little bit about just, you know, give a little shout out and tell them where they can find out more information, whether it's for their organization to possibly use your tools or maybe even as an individual to check it out? How do they find you? Absolutely. So uh, anyone who'd be interested in learning more about Skyhive can visit our our website at www.skyhive.io. You can find us on Twitter at underscore skyhive and i think that's probably uh that's probably good enough we have quite a digital trail that exists after that or of course on google just skyhive technologies great well for all of you listeners out there i hope you'll take a moment and do check out their work and you know i really love it and i really appreciate what you guys are doing and can't wait to see where you go in the future please keep me posted so i can support you and and uh, keep you going out there. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Heidi. Really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been really great. And for those of you digital selfers out there, thank you for joining us for today's show. We look forward to you joining us next time. And don't forget to share the show with your friends, subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And we look forward to catching you next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.